Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a special message today from yours truly at the Love Life California conference last month on January 29th, 2022 at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills. If you want to listen to all of our different guest speakers' messages, uh, you can access each of those at my YouTube channel, Seth Gruber, A Voice for the Unborn. Subscribe on YouTube, hit the notifications bell so you don't miss uh, a single video. And you can watch all, is it nine of our guest speakers' messages? They're incredible. You don't want to miss them. Um, however, we won't be releasing all of those talks on this podcast, but mine we will be releasing right now. It's called It's Time to to blow the trumpet. We need to become like Ezekiel in this moment and be a watchman for our times in our cities by letting people know the evil that is happening in the country, what we can do to stand against it as the church, as the only really prophetic voice in the culture that is called to be involved in promoting righteousness and restraining evil and waking people up by blowing the trumpet and letting them know that your comfort with all of your freedoms and liberties is going to continue to deteriorate as long as we allow this tyranny in the womb, as long as we allow this abridgment and abuse of the natural right to life of an entire class of human beings. So we talk about what we believe, what we're facing, and what we must do with some encouraging, beautiful stories of men and women who stood in 1940s Germany against the tyrannical Nazi regime that was also taking people's, people's natural right to life away. And we need to become students of history, not just of God's story in scriptures, but also of our spiritual forefathers who have stood before and find strength from their testimony, their standing, and their story. So I hope you enjoyed this message. Send it to your pastor, your friends, your family members, your coworkers. Share it widely. We want to wake up and stir the American church out of her coma. Um, enjoy this. Buckle up. You're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If I could bottle the moral and spiritual clarity and courage of Jack Hibbs and then inject it into the shoulders of American pastors like a booster shot, I could end abortion in this country in one year. Just saying, since we're talking about natural immunity, we need some spiritual immunity. <laughs> and we need some moral and spiritual courage. So praise God for, for Pastor Jack Hibbs. Um, I have a hard time speaking for a short amount of time, if you've um, heard me speak before. So I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, we had uh, Eric Metaxas at uh, Godspeak Calvary Chapel last year. He actually preached a message here either at the end of 2020 or early 2021. I can't recall. And it was called, What Would Bonhoeffer Do Today? And a powerful title. And if you guys watched it, I mean, I'm sure you agree. If you haven't, go watch it. It's on the Calvary Chapel or Jack Hibbs YouTube channel. But I had a moment with Metaxas at the Godspeak studio, which blessed me, because I read his biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. Heck of a bio, by the way. You, you want to get introduced like that. I mean, my goodness. And everyone tries to claim Bonhoeffer, right? The liberals do, the conservatives do. Like, we all think that we can somehow identify with Bonhoeffer. Um, but there's a lot about his life that we actually miss until you actually begin to study it. And so I told Eric, I said, hey, brother, I read your book in 2012. I was like a sophomore or junior at Westmont College, that pathetic excuse for a Christian institution. I, I won't get into that during our time today. And I said, I need to tell you something. You quoted Eberhard Besky in your book, Eric. 
Eberhard Besky was a member of the Confessing Church. He was one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friends. And I don't know if you know this, but Eberhard Besky is the first biographer of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The first biography that's available that was written about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was written by Eberhard Besky. And I think he's Dietrich's only biographer that actually knew him. Right? They were like best friends, right? And I said, you quoted Eberhard Besky in your book, Eric, and the quote from your book fundamentally transformed how I view the abortion issue. And I've used it in introductions to my talks for years now. And so I recited it to him from memory. And Eric Metaxas went, whoa. I forgot about that. Because Eric writes so many books, right? And he speaks so much. So he'd come, he's like, oh, do you have your book? He's like, can I sign your book? And can you flip open to that page? And I was like, boom, yeah. He takes a picture of it. He's like, I need to remember that one. Because he, he was so floored by it, right? And that blessed me because I was like, wow. <laughs> it's a heck of a powerful quote. So I want to open up my, my talk and time with you this morning by reciting this for you. So Eberhard Besky, pastor, theologian, one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friends, he did end up surviving past the war. Obviously, he wrote a biography about Bonhoeffer. Of course, Bonhoeffer didn't. He was killed, right? One of, what, by the way, one of Adolf Hitler's last orders before he shot himself in the head was you make sure Dietrich Bonhoeffer's killed. Oh, he hated the fact that Dietrich Bonhoeffer tried to arrange an assassination attempt on his life and hated him for it. One of the days before Hitler chooses, you make sure Bonhoeffer dies. Well, Eberhard Besky is explaining the situation that how Bonhoeffer saw it. The confessing church you know what the Confessing Church was? It was a church that set themselves up against the Deutsch Christens. What was the Deutsch Christens? The German church. When I say the German church, I don't mean the church that found itself in the geography of Germany. No, no, no. no. I mean the Germans' church, right? They had been co-opted into obedience to the Nazi ideology, right? So, so <laughs> this is no longer, this is what Bonhoeffer later called cheap grace, Right, which is grace and gospel you create in your own image. The confessing church was launched to set themselves in opposition to the German church saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you're going to claim the name of Christ and simultaneously preach Nazi bigotry from your pulpit, you might not be confessing the real Christ. That was who the confessing church was. So here's what Eberhard Besky said, one of the closest friends to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Listen to this. Bonhoeffer introduced us in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. The levels of confession, and by confession, he doesn't mean confessing your sins, okay? He means proclamation, to declare, to confess beliefs. The levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated an increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer himself. We now realize that mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers. Even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted. And even though we could preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday, during the whole time the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. Why should it? Okay, pause. Now here's my commentary. Interesting, why should it? What's he saying? What's Bethke saying? We were preaching the gospel. <laughs> we were waxing and waning theological about the beauty of the gospel, and the Nazis were fine with it. We had religious freedom. We could say what we wanted to say, but we were only confessing orthodoxy. Our resistance to the forces of evil was merely linguistic, and so the Nazis are fine with that. You keep your liturgy in the church, though. You keep your gospel in the church, though. Don't you go and contend in the public square, which was why Adolf Hitler's favorite verse to cite two Germans was Romans 13. Be obedient to the governing authorities for their institute and my... Be obedient to me! 
says Hitler. I'm the governing authority. He loved to cite that verse to make the church be silent. Do you see? Mere confession, no matter how courageous, was actually complicity with the murderers. He continues. During, uh, Thus we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. Is that not the most perfect description of the American evangelical church on the issue of abortion today? Our resistance to this genocide, our resistance to this Holocaust has merely proved itself through words. Oh, we're a super pro-life church. We have the local pregnancy center director have a table outside on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday once a year. We're like so pro-life. I even make a one-time donation to the local pregnancy resource center once a year. Yeah, we're like, you probably never met a more pro-life church. And our litmus test for moral courage on abortion is so low that when churches do engage with a Sanctity of Human Life message once a year, (laughs) the congregants are like, we have a very pro-life church. Because our resistance to this genocide has merely been linguistic. Words to which today's genociders and the practitioners of genocide say the same thing to us that the Nazis said to the confessing church. Thank you, thank you, that's awesome. Just keep your liturgy in the church. We love that. Just don't you contend in the public square. Don't you pose a threat to our political regime, which is built on the mutilated bodies of aborted children. We have been confessing pro-life beliefs, but refusing to resist the evil of abortion. So to move from mere confession to resistance, we as Christians must do three things. We must know what we believe, what we're facing, and what we must do. Now, because of sake of time, I'm not going to dive into too much on what we believe. We kind of all believe the same thing. That's why you're here. That's why you spent $49 on a Saturday morning to check in at 6.30 a.m. in order to defend the unborn. But uh, so I'm not going to dive into all the pro-abortion arguments and debunking them. I have a podcast. It's called Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Go subscribe to it. In a few months, you'll be a pro-life ninja flipping around, demolishing abortion bigotry wherever you find it. I do think, not so humbly, it's the best pro-life podcast in the world, but I mean... It's mine, right? I'd spent a lot of time on it. So I'm not going to dive into like the case for life, which is like a 40-minute message. Just go subscribe to the podcast. But in short, the reason why we have to be so crystal clear on what we believe is this. Because mere confession, no matter how courageous, means complicity with the murderers. Kim Keller, Andy Stanley, Ed Stetzer, Brian Broderhorst, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, Richard Foster, who wrote the book Celebration of Discipline. You guys remember that book? Yeah, he was part of the Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden group in 2020. He signed on to the statement, the Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. Did you hear about their new group? It's called Fiscal Conservatives for Karl Marx. Yeah, it's a wonderful group. Yeah, and they, they, I just heard their new one. It's called Believe All Women for Harvey Weinstein. It's, it's wonderful. Wait, one thing's not like the other. Yeah, pro-lifers don't vote for pro-abortion politicians. What's my point? Look at all of these pro-life Christian pastors and leaders and authors who what? Confess all the right beliefs. But they cave on the one point that they're, they're, they're needed the most. They flinch at the one point that they're needed the most. Mere confession. Just like the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan were anti-street mugging. They were religious leaders. They were probably on their way to their synagogue to prep their message on Friday night. Right? They were, they were perfect. They followed the law. 
they would not have condoned beating a dude on the side of the road. But when they saw a bleeding dude on the side of the road, which Luke's gospel says he's half dead, they walked by on the other side of the road. Yeah, just like Tim Keller and Andy Stanley and Ed Stetzer, right? They all confess pro-life beliefs. But then they say, you can vote for pro-abortion politicians who lynch your neighbors in the womb. Yeah, something tells me you're not really pro-life. So that's why it's important to know what we believe, because <laughs> we don't believe the same thing. And we need to begin resisting this genocide, which is our civil rights issue. It is our Holocaust. But in brief, let me give you a one-minute recap, just to you know, give you some moral fiber and courage and confidence in your position, because I actually agree with Dr. Fauci. We should follow the science. Follow the science. Follow the science. I am science. Recent. Did you see that? He said, I am science. Well, let's follow the science, Dr. Frankenstein Fauci who funds the University of Pittsburgh where they scalp the heads of aborted babies. No, this is true, through the NIAID, Fauci funds the University of Pittsburgh where they scalp the heads of aborted children between 20 and 24 weeks old who could have survived outside the womb in a neonatal unit with the help of heroic doctors. They take the scalps of those children, go look it up. They insert them subcutaneously on lab rats and the lab rat begins to grow the infant human hair, there's pictures of this, that would have grown on the scalp of the infant had they not been aborted in the womb. They call it humanized mice and they use it to perform experiments to find solutions to staph infections. So next time Dr. Fauci tells you, follow the science, just know he's one of the most radically pro-abortion politicians in the world who doesn't follow the science of embryology, which says that from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being. Uh, distinct because the body in her body is not her body. That's why pregnant women can be pregnant with uh, pre-born males. Uh, gentlemen, pre-born males, amen? When our lives began. And because pregnant women don't have male genitalia, uh, then it means the body in her body is not her body. Living because the baby's directing their own internal growth from within. And whole, a whole human being is a human being who already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Just like a Polaroid camera and you shake the photo, right? Let's say I rip it out of your hands, I tear it up in little pieces and I throw it into the dirt. Would you be upset? Sure, but what if I tell you, brother, sister, calm, calm down, chill out. That beautiful sunrise you got a picture of? It wasn't a sunrise, it was just a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. And you'd say, Seth, what are you talking about? The sunrise was already there. We just couldn't see it yet. Everything that was necessary for the photo to realize its full development was already present when the photo got spit out. It just needed time. That's the science of embryology. That's how you began. Even if we couldn't see you yet, you just needed time. So that's what we believe. If you want to like, hear a debunking of every pro-abortion argument and get way more intellectual firepower than you probably want, go subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So if we're going to move from confession to resistance, we have to know what we believe. Secondly, we have to know what we're facing because evil is on the rise in a way that we've never, I've never seen before in my life. Purely on the issue of abortion. <laughs> Not even mentioning all the other political issues, which we don't have time to get into. This morning, what are we facing? Well, since Joe Biden was elect, entered the White House. <laughs> since Joe Biden entered the White House, uh, they've returned into funding abortions overseas with your tax dollars. Majority in black countries, which is so funny because that administration told me black lives matter. It's very strange. Uh, they've increased the tax funding of Planned Parenthood by the millions, okay? They restarted using your tax dollars to fund fetal tissue research. Fetal tissue research in and of itself is kind of a euphemism. Let me translate, I, I translate euphemisms into reality. It's called dead baby chopping. 
You chop up children after they're aborted, you harvest their organs, you sell them on the black market, and if you're Kamala Harris when you're attorney general in California, you prosecute the whistleblowers rather than Planned Parenthood who's lining your pockets with campaign donations. Okay, so they're using tax, our tax dollars to fund that again. Judicial Watch last year exposed the FDA, the FDA, for purchasing 20 to 24-week-old aborted children from advanced bioscience lab resources in Northern California with the request, quote, fresh and on ice. Because you gotta get the cadavers you know, as fresh as possible so you can perform experiments and also create humanized mice. So that happened last year. Uh, scientists last year are pushing to drop the 14-day limit on growing human beings artificially in, la in labs, like in petri dishes, like outside of the womb, because they want to see how long can we develop a baby artificially, because the older we can get the baby, the more we can experiment with uh, gene editing prenatal gene editing, because, yeah, the baby dies, but, you know, that's acceptable because if we can test it on the babies who we sacrifice, then maybe we can apply it to ourselves later when it's safe, because, God forbid, my rights are compromised. And then we can edit out of the gene code certain things we don't like that make us susceptible to diseases. So the baby simply becomes a sacrifice on man's pursuit of eternal life. Some of those same scientists are also behind uh, human-monkey hybrids. They're growing them, killing them, and harvesting their organs so that those of us who need organs can just live a little bit longer. The Biden administration, through the FDA, just lifted the two decades-long safety regulations on the sale of the abortion pill. I, I could give a whole lecture on it. In short, women could not get the two deadly abortion pills unless they came to an in-person evaluation with a physician. Here's why. They confirmed gestational age, because the abortion pill's only taken through 10 weeks. And did you know, I have like pro-life OBGYNs on my show. They tell me that like anytime they're seeing pregnant women, about 50% of them are anywhere from one to four weeks wrong, off, on how far along they think they are. So what happens if a mom thinks she's nine weeks along and she takes the abortion pill, which you can take, take through 10 weeks, but she's really 12 or 13 weeks? Well, it leads to incomplete abortions, usually, usually still kills the baby, but then it leaves floating dead baby parts in mom's uterus, making her susceptible to sepsis and death. So pregnant women, to the abortion industry, pregnant women become just as much of, of sacrificial lambs as the unborn children, because what's the incentive in both cases? Profit, money, right? And the second reason was you have to make sure mom doesn't have a tubal pregnancy, an ectopic pregnancy, right? Because if she takes the abortion pill, it's, it's not going to successfully abort the child. The same effects of the abortion pill, the pressure you feel, is similar to the pressure you would feel with a ectopic pregnancy. So they tell her, oh, that's fine. That's, how you, that's what you're supposed to feel with an abortion pill, except her, her fallopian tube is expanding because the baby implanted in the fallopian tube, then it bursts, then she bleeds out internally, and her parents or dorm uh, roommates find her on the restroom floor dead. So they said, oh yeah, no more safety regulations on the sale of the abortion pill. So it's called snail mail abortions, mail order murder, sending it right to your mailboxes. So in case you ever wondered whether the left actually just cares about women, they hate the unborn children, but they really care about the women, well, there's your smoking gun right there of how much they hate pregnant women as well. Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of America, right, who, uh, who's very pissed off because he was denied a, a seat on the Supreme Court by Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch, and he's very upset. So he's launching an attack against every conservative pro-lifer. And so he's floated the idea last year, maybe we need to send in federal agents into Texas to prevent them from enforcing their Texas six-week heartbeat abortion ban, which doesn't actually enforce it with the power of the state. It deputizes private citizens to file lawsuits against people involved with an abortion. So Texas and Greg Abbott can say, we're not enforcing the law. And now tens of thousands of unborn children are alive because of that policy there. And he's saying, maybe we need to send in federal agents. He floated this idea last year. Do you know what he's saying? Civil war. 
That's what he's saying. Okay, uh, Governor Newsom Leaney, let's see. He just signed a bill a few months ago allowing 12-year-olds to charge abortions to their parents' insurance plans. Let me say that again. Allowing 12-year-olds to charge abortions to their parents' insurance plans without parental consent or knowledge and preventing insurance companies from informing the parents. Now, you can't go on a field trip without parental consent. You can't get Advil from your seventh grade junior high school without parental consent. Oh, but you can kill your parents' grandchild. And the insurance company can't tell the parents. So just a little bit about Newsom's California. And listen, what are we facing? What are we facing? Gavin Newsom is teaming up with a group called Future of Abortion Council. And there's a California chapter called California Future of Abortion Council. What they're doing, guys, is they're already predicting that Roe v. Wade will get overturned in June. So they're saying, well, we need to gird up our pro-abortion degenerate loins, and we need to prepare to make states sanctuary states for killing babies. And so the California Future of Abortion Council report, when it shows the people involved in crafting the recommendations, right there it says Office of Gavin Newsom. Here are four things out of 45 recommendations from this report. Okay, this, this is what we're facing here in California. Your taxpayer dollars will be used to cover the travel expenses of women coming out of more conservative states into California to get abortions. So let's say Arizona has more pro-life policies. You know what your taxpayer dollars are going to fund in California? Not only her gas, her hotel, her food expenses, and the abortion itself, but the babysitting for the born children that mom left at home in Arizona while she traveled to California to kill those, those children's siblings. They're paying for the babysitting of children so their mothers can kill their preborn children. Additionally, they'll require anyone graduating from California medical schools to receive training in chemical and aspiration abortions. Your taxpayer dollars will be used to provide scholarships and loan repayment for physicians who want to become abortionists so they can incentivize more people to become abortionists because guess what? It's kind of a hard career path and not very many people choose it. So they're trying to incentivize that. And lastly, subsidize abortions for low-income women. So whenever they say, minorities, minorities, we need to increase the representation of minorities because we're the Democrat party, we're the party of the little guy. Yeah, they want to subsidize abortions for low-income women. So <laughs> yeah, take your eugenics and shove it where the sun don't shine. Right, but these people are all disciples of Margaret Sanger. So this should not surprise us. Why do they do this? Let's ask this question very briefly. Why do they do this? Have you ever wondered why the left is so obsessed with abortion? <laughs> like, because these things I just went through, right? Aren't you encouraged, by the way? Aren't you like, oh, wow. These things right here make pro-abortion uh, activists from the 1980s look like pragmatic moderates. No, seriously. Like, the pro-choice activists of the late 70s would be like, you sickos! Like, hey, I hate pre-born children too, but come on, we got to protect the health of women. I mean, this is so radical. Why do they do this? Listen, for the left in the secular progressive movement, abortion is not just one issue among many. Abortion is not just a women's right issue for the secular progressive movement. For the secular progressive movement, abortion is a sacrament. Abortion is the high sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism. Now, I know that sounds strange. If you listen to my show, you're like, oh, here he goes again. But if you don't, and you're like, Seth, it's a, well, it's an atheist movement. Like, why, they're not religious. Why are you using the term sacrament? That's really weird, Seth. Let, let me sort of flesh this out because actually, actually, if you don't get this, your eyes will not be opened up to the battle we're facing and you won't be spiritually prepared to contend with this evil. What do I mean by this? The secular progressive or anyone else who turns from God is not listening to God, right? If you're not a son or daughter of the king, if your heart's not been regenerated, then you will be being preyed upon by demons. You will be susceptible to the lies of the enemy. Prince of demons, Lord of flies, when he lies, he speaks his native language. So what lie are they hearing? When they participate in the liturgy of abortion, 
What lie are they hearing? The first lie. Jack just said it. Genesis 3, the lie that led to every other lie. What does the serpent tell Eve? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. So Eve got woke. <laughs> and no, it is the first woke story, actually. No, seriously, because she eats the apple. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to see reality for what it really is. If you eat the apple, you'll see real reality. Do it my way. Get woke. Try to see a different Gnostic way. It's the first woke story. For God does know that you'll be as gods. But they were already going to be gods. They were already perfect. They were already going to live forever. <laughs> but they bought the lie. Yeah. Abortion is the high sacrament of secular progressivism because abortion deifies ourself into modern gods to decide who lives and who dies. Because if we're God, right, then we get to decide who lives and who dies, right? We also get to live forever. That's what makes a God a God, right? They're eternal. They live forever. So we can create babies specifically to poke them and prod them, perform experiments to extend our own lives because we're entitled to it, because we're a God. If God's not dead, I'm God, and I get to decide who lives and who dies. So when woke pastors tell you, I don't preach on politics, I don't preach on abortion because it's a political issue. You know what I say? No, no, no. You don't preach against false religion that masquerades as politics in order to keep the politically impotent pastor silent. You confess and you don't resist. Keep your liturgy in the church. You confess what you believe to be true, but don't you take it out into the public square. Abortion is the sacrament of secular progressivism because abortion says you must die so I can live. But Christ says actually... I must die so you can live. I die and I'm raised from death so you can too. The fetal deity, the prenatal God-man who'd entered human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins pays the punishment for their sins. Peter Kreft, the Catholic philosopher, put this better than I ever could when he said abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So God says, Christ says, this is my body, broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of me. The culture of death, not ironically, because it's a spiritual battle, says the same words. This is my body, my choice, and I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me I shall be as gods. And a God gets to decide who lives and who dies. By the way, the Texas Satanic Temple filed a lawsuit against Texas for their pro-life legislation. You, don't want, you want to know what the Texas Satanic Temple said? The satanic abortion ritual is our sacrament. So to quote Maya Angelou, when someone shows you who they are, mm, believe them. They're telling you this is their high sacrament. So if Roe v. Wade gets overturned and this goes back to the states, the summer of love of 2020 is going to look mostly peaceful compared to what will happen when this sacrament in the high places begins to be torn down. This is what we're facing. So what must we do? It's actually a very simple answer. Live today like you have all told yourselves in your mind you would live if you were in 1940s Germany. Come on. Not all of us have said it verbally, but be honest. Everyone in this room has at one point in their life thought this thought. If I had lived in 1939 Germany, oh, <laughs> uh, me and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we would have been like this. I would have probably founded the Confessing Church. You know, and if I had lived then, the assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler probably would have succeeded if I had been there. 
Be honest. You think you would have been a Bonhoeffer. You think you would have been an Oscar Schindler. You think you would have been a Sophie Scholl. You think if you lived in 1850s America that you would be an abolitionist. We all think it. Oh, I would be underground railroading it so hard with Harriet Tubman. We would be BFFs. We like to think that, right? But this is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We stand in 2022 and we look down our noses at Christians who allowed these injustices. <laughs> Those degenerate cheap grace Christians, how could they have allowed that? We allow our own Holocaust. We allow our own lynchings. It's called womb lynchings and it happens at the tune of a million a year. It's easy to tell ourselves now we would be engaged, but isn't that how powerful bigotry is? Because what does bigotry do? It blinds you to what would otherwise be obvious truths about human nature. Namely, that all humans are persons are created in the image of God with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. So to quote Randy Alcorn, we shake our heads in disgust at the German church's tolerance of one holocaust while ignoring our own tolerance of another. So if you're done with tolerating evil, then we need to become like Ezekiel and be a watchman for our times in our cities. Right? You know this verse in Ezekiel 33. What does God tell Ezekiel? Not only is he to be a prophet, he's to be a watchman. And here's how God explains what that means. He says, Ezekiel, if the watchman on the wall sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any from among them, they are taken away in their iniquity, but their blood I will require at the watchman's hand. If we don't blow the trumpet, when we see the swords of the enemy approaching and others suffer or are killed because they were not warned, God will hold us accountable, brothers and sisters. Well, the swords of Planned Parenthood are suction machines, poison pills, and forceps, and their, enemy, and their language is out of their father's lies. The enemy is at our gates, friends. Their weapons are sharpened, their troops are well-trained, and their greatest hope, their dream, what would make their day is for you to keep your liturgy just focused on psalm singing and drinking lattes after church while they build the wall, they build the city, and convert the posterity of this country to the religion of secular progressivism. Friends, I think it's time to blow the trumpet. Yeah. And today, you're going to learn how to blow that trumpet. You're going to get educated and equipped to blow that trumpet. And you're going to be given tools to polish that trumpet, tune it up, and keep it performing perfectly so more babies are saved, more minds are changed, and more lives are saved. But brothers and sisters, it's time to stop blaming the doers of evil and start blowing the trumpet, engaging and resisting the spirit of the age and his obsession with killing babies. Don't blame the doers of evil. The blame is on us for watching those who murder the unborn and doing nothing to stop them. So I wanna end with this story, okay? It's the story of a woman named Sophie Scholl. And the fact that none of you went, oh, is actually why I'm telling the story. Because if I had said, I want to tell you the story of Oscar Schindler, you would have all gone, oh. Nobody knows Sophie Scholl. Sophie and Hans Scholl of the White Rose Resistance in Germany. And I want to tell you her story because you know what she does? She doesn't blame the doers of evil. She blames the people who knew better and did nothing. Right. Sophie Scholl was a 20-year-old seminary student who was actually initially a member of the Nazi youth and became horrified at what was happening, and came across pamphlets and anti-Nazi literature being used to rally the troops, she found out it was her brother Hans who was, and he hadn't told her, because he was like, yeah, dude, you're part of Nazi youth, right? 
Well, God convicts her heart, breaks her heart, boils her blood. She gets engaged. They begin distributing anti-Nazi literature to rally resistance, and they had their head chopped off by the Nazis. Sophie and Hans Scholl, guillotined at 21 years old. And shortly before her death, she explained the situation of how the real damage was actually done, who really bore the blame, and guess what? She didn't blame the Nazis. She said the real damage is done by those millions who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, strength, and principles are only literature. What does she mean? Mere confession. I proclaim all of the right truths. It's only literature. Those who live small die small. It's the reductionistic approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion. Because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe? From what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out, just like the flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. 21 years old. Her final words recorded moments before having her head chopped off of her neck was this. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? And then Sophie and her brother Hans Scholl had their head left chopped off of their neck. What we do in this life, brothers and sisters, echoes in eternity. And men and women and young men and women across the world have looked to the story of Sophie and Han Scholl of the white rose resistance to find the courage and strength to resist their own injustices. We have been confessing all of the right beliefs, but doing nothing to resist the evil of our times. So brothers and sisters, if you feel like it's too late, if you feel like the list of what we're facing is too overwhelming to turn this American experiment around, that's not an excuse to not engage. Or to quote John Quincy Adams, the abolitionist and the hellhound of slavery, when he was asked, uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, do you think you'll ever turn slavery around? I mean, come on, it's kind of too late. John Quincy Adams says, duty is ours, results are God's. And it is a glorious time to be alive, for Aslan is on the move. The lion of the tribe of Judah is moving. He is stirring all men's souls. He is drawing you from your fireside and your comfort and your wealth and your pursuit of happiness and responding to impulses at once awe-striking and irresistible. We have a duty to engage, for he is our king, the God-man, the fetal deity, 
the greatest former fetus to have ever existed, who identified with you from your most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage. And when we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, I believe we're also going to be asked what we did or did not do to end this genocide, this holocaust, engaging outside of today's concentration camps and death camps, where our neighbors have their limbs ripped off of their body. And I pray that you would join me in simply citing the words of William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist to our king by saying, let it not be said of me, Lord, that I was silent when they needed me. The babies have never needed the church of Jesus Christ more than this time that we're living in right now. This is a Kairos moment for the church in the country. And to quote Gandalf the Grey, <laughs> all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Brothers and sisters, I'll see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that message. It is indeed time to blow the trumpet and I would encourage you to send that message uh, to your pastor, uh, to the teachers and principals at your kid's Christian school, to stir people to action, to begin blowing the trumpet yourself and praying and welcoming others into contending for the faith and for the rights of the least of these in the public square as well. This year, 2022, is going to be one of the most significant years in what I call the abortion wars. This war in our country, this division over who counts as one of us, whether everyone gets the right to life or not. And maybe the elite class just gets to decide which human beings are entitled to the natural rights that our entire republic was built upon. This year, with the near overturning of Roe versus Wade, with states stepping up to bat for the preborn, and with the church stirring as if awakening from a long a coma, this is the year that we need to awaken, find our place on the wall, begin blowing the trumpet, and speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves in our own lives, but also politically and spiritually as well to restore to our preborn neighbors that first and most important of all rights, the right to life. So I encourage you to send this message broadly. And just as a reminder, we have a generous church partner that partners with me to get me into churches, faith-based high schools, um, and Christian events across the country who can't afford to fly guest speakers out and pay their travel expenses and an honorarium and all of that. Um, so if you want to bring this kind of message to fire up your church and your youth group uh, to get involved in the fight for life, then consider taking advantage of that wonderfully gracious opportunity by emailing me at seth at sethgruber.com. That's seth at sethgruber.com. And if you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and check out our perks and tears as a thank you for supporting the show. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs>